In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. It's always a treat on Notably Disney to talk with celebrated authors whose contributions to the Disney book world have been immense, and today's episode is no exception, as I have a conversation with J.B. Kaufman, who wrote the really epic book, Pinocchio, The Making of the Disney Epic, that debuted back in 2015. It's been a staple on my bookshelf for several years, and it's a real pleasure to learn from JB on the development of not only the book, but also the Walt Disney masterpiece. So let's get straight into that conversation. For years, author JB Kaufman has covered many aspects of Disney history, particularly during the era featuring, featuring Walt's earliest projects, with his books on Silly Symphonies, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and the feature that is the center of today's discussion. Celebrating its 80th anniversary this year, Walt Disney's masterpiece Pinocchio has dazzled animation connoisseurs with its brilliant storytelling, visual artistry, charming characters, and unforgettable music. JB chronicled the making of this movie in his 2015 title, Pinocchio, the making of the Disney epic. Love that. Today, JB joins me to talk about the development of this beautiful book, his interest in Pinocchio as a topic, and the impact of this animated feature. So without any further ado, welcome to Notably Disney, JB. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. It's nice to be here. Well, this is a really exciting topic, not only based on its really big anniversary, um, that it celebrated earlier this year, but also just thinking back to the rich history of Disney animation and the legacy that Pinocchio has uh, left um, in, in those many decades since. But I, I want to make sure that our listeners are familiar with your body of work um, because you are a very prolific and, and notable Disney historian and author. Can you just share a little bit of context on 
uh, how you became this pivotal figure in chronicling Disney history? <laughs> well, I, I don't know that I'm a pivotal figure, but I, I can tell you how I, how I got started. Basically, um, I, like many of us, I, I grew up on Disney. I also discovered film history at an early age and then eventually figured out that one could put those two subjects together because Disney was such an important part of American film history. And, um, and after that, one thing kind of led to another. I, um, I had the great good fortune of collaborating with Russell Merritt on a book about the silent Disney films, which uh, was uh, premiered at the at Le Giornate del Cinema Muto, which is the world's leading silent film festival uh, in 1992. They, they presented a program of Disney silence and they published our book uh, to go with it. And after the festival was over, the book got out into the world and became a real book. And, uh, and then after that, one thing led to another. That opened the doors to other uh, potential projects. So I've, uh, I've grabbed every opportunity that came along. And uh, my, my first Disney love, I guess, is, is that golden era, you know, the, uh, the, the 20s, the 30s, and then the early feature-length films. And as you know, um, Snow White and then Pinocchio are kind of the crowning glory of that period. So I felt really, really fortunate that I had the opportunity to, uh, to do the research and to write these books. I often tell people that um, writing a book about a subject is really just an excuse to do the research. And uh, that's, that's, that was the case with these. It's um, it, it really, having the opportunity to really get in and explore uh, one of these great films and, and learn what makes it tick down to the last detail, that's, um, that's kind of the dream of most Disney enthusiasts, I think. And, and I've been fortunate enough to have that opportunity. Absolutely. Well, and that's, I think, one of the challenges or opportunities associated with covering an individual subject. We've on Notably Disney, we've had uh, many other authors who have covered uh, wide periods of Disney history, um, whether someone like Mindy Johnson, who has covered the women of Disney animation, um, or even Christopher Merritt, who wrote the book on Mark Davis, or co-wrote the book on Mark Davis's um, career in Imagineering. And in, in those spaces, you're covering wide breadths of time and oftentimes many subjects. In this case, as you pointed out, you're focusing on one project with a a wealth of detail. So how do you, when you, when you had the opportunity to develop this project, how do you commit yourself to saying, okay, I'm going to learn every little facet of Pinocchio in this case? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's not difficult <laughs> just because, you know, you, you, you pick a subject that you love. And um, when I don't know how, how other authors go about it, but I can tell you that with me, it generally takes years to do a book like this. So you need to pick a topic that, that you love enough that you don't mind spending several years with it. Um, I'm not even sure how many years I spent living with Pinocchio, but it wasn't um, a hardship in any way because uh, this, this is a film that I've loved since childhood and have always been curious about the details of it. So getting a chance to pursue those details um, 
that's that's just gold. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it wasn't, as I say, it wasn't any hardship at all. Right. Well, and what a, a treasure of a film it is, and you have certainly uncovered, um, as I said, probably every little facet going right down to um, all the individual credits and, and really honoring the, the folks, the animators and other members of the, the Disney team who were responsible for specific sequences and um, components of the project. I, I am wondering, though, as far as what drew you to be actually involved in the development of this book. I, I believe I may have heard a story that Diane Disney Miller perhaps played a role in your involvement. Well, yeah, and, and as a matter of fact, I was I was working with Diane at the time, and she, um, you've you've probably heard this before, but it won't hurt to repeat it. Uh, she was just one of the, the most wonderful people you could ever meet. She was, um, she was definitely her father's daughter, and uh, meaning that she was very, very sharp, very creative, and uh, really committed to honoring the legacy, that the creative legacy that he left. And um, so, yeah, I, I, uh, I did have the, uh, the great pleasure of, of having a personal friendship with her and working with her on several projects. And um, we, uh, my, actually my first project with her was a book about the Disney Latin American films of the 1940s, mm. uh, because that was, uh, that, that's, that's another avenue that, that has always interested me. And then um, one thing kind of led to another. We were talking about the South American book one day, and she said, well, what do you think your next project ought to be? <laughs> And so we, uh, I, I thought, well, this is, this is good. So we, we started talking about possible projects that led to, uh, two, uh, different books on the making of Snow White. And then, um, after that, it was just a natural progression to Pinocchio. Well, and I think, you know, as a subject matter, like Pinocchio, and, and I think the word epic is a, a very appropriate word to attach to it because Pinocchio is an epic feature that really set the tone of Disney animation. Certainly Snow White preceded it, but in many ways, um, I would argue that it's, it's equal and a, and a fine counterpart in um, establishing that foundation. Could you talk about just the, how you begin a project like this? I know it, you said many years, but where, where do you begin when you are focusing on a topic like a, a singular film project? Well, where I begin uh, is at the Walt Disney Archives. Um, and there's, we, we, could, we could spend all day talking about the Disney Archives. You may know that it was founded in 1970 by Dave Smith. Mm -hmm. and, um, and of course, that was just a few years after Walt himself had died. And so a lot of the uh, material from his career was was still was still fresh, and and Dave did a pretty marvelous job of of collecting it all and catalog cataloging it and and uh, putting it all in one place, and um, and that was just the beginning. And they've gone on. Uh, Dave isn't with us anymore, but uh, Becky Klein is now the the director of of the archives, and she is also just aces she she's she's really uh, very very sharp and has great ideas of, about how to maintain this material and she has built up a great team there so um 
it is the case that, you know, if you do a, a lot of the uh, film history research that I do goes back to the silent era. And there are many cases when you're, when you're documenting silent film history, there are many cases where you're lucky if you can find any um, primary materials at all to document the making of those films. Well, with Disney, you're at the opposite end of the spectrum. I think that they probably did more than any other uh, movie studio to preserve their history. And especially when it comes to major works like Snow White and Pinocchio, um, the biggest challenge is just to get on top of that mountain of research material that they have um, and, uh, and process it all and try to get some kind of a, uh, an intellectual handle on everything that, that you have there. Uh, there are also other departments within the company. Uh, one of the, the most important ones being the animation research library. And uh, they, generally speaking, the archives maintains the written material. The animation research library uh, retains the artwork. But that's just, that's a generalization, and, and there are always exceptions. And some really, really important uh, written documentation has survived in the collection of the ARL along with the artwork. So that's, um, I, I don't know, am, am I answering your question? This, this is, yes. the, the, first, the first step basically is to, um, to basically <laughs> spend a lot of time camping out at, at both of those places and taking tons and tons of notes. Um, the, the, the interesting thing about this, though, is that if you start following this trail, it inevitably will lead you to other areas that are outside the immediate Disney universe. Uh, so, for example, with, um, with uh, Pinocchio, of course, uh, the film is based on, on the Italian novel, uh, Pinocchio by Collodi. And if you follow that trail, you get into uh, the whole kind of Italian literary scene at the time that book was written. And that leads into um, the history of the country, because that wasn't that wasn't that long after the unification of Italy. Um, and so if you follow those trails far enough, you wind up getting an education in some area that's completely outside the subject you're focusing on. Um, but sometimes that's you know, it's really important to have that deep background. When I was writing about Snow White, I wound up getting a crash course in the history of folklore because that story, of course, dates back hundreds of years, even before the Grimm brothers. So, um, you know, it can be a great learning opportunity if, if you, you know, follow these, these trails far enough. But the first place that I always start is uh, the Disney archives and likely the ARL. Well, and I know that there's such a, a treasure trove of information there. And what I loved about your book is that, per what you were just saying, kind of covering the roots of Pinocchio, I, I didn't feel like as though I was just learning about the Disney animated feature, but really the, the inception and, and how you draw connections between the book's characters and ultimately how they manifested or didn't manifest in the Disney animated picture. Um, and kind of curating that information, how how do you make sense of, okay, I, I need to be as comprehensive as possible, but also make it accessible to a general audience? Well, that's, um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's one of the challenges, you know, a, a, a writer 
who who writes this kind of material um, does walk uh, a bit of a tightrope between you know you want to know everything when when you're writing about the subject you want to know everything but you know in advance that you can't get everything into the book so part of the job is to um, to absorb all of this information and then uh, synthesize, summarize, and and boil it down into a form that that will be accessible to the reader. Uh, you know, you could, if you wanted to reproduce everything, you could wind up with with uh, a six volume set on the making of Pinocchio. But there are not a lot of people who would really want to. Uh, learn about it in that detail. I do, but uh, you know, I, I recognize that not everybody does. So you you just have to um, find a way to to boil it down and get across the essence of it. For sure. Well, I, I could imagine there might be some Disney fans who would be okay with reading six volumes on Pinocchio, but <laughs> I, I would contend that you pack a, a lot into this, and it um, and yet it still feels easy to digest and and really absorb both the, the artwork and um, the, the narrative that you craft um, to tell that story. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. One, one thing about it too, is that when you're, when you're dealing in, in the real world with, with uh, the book publishing uh, business, uh, you have to take the business into account. So, um, so there are times when uh, you have to, you have to make the, uh, the publisher and, and the editors happy uh, by not going too far overboard with with too much detail, I was really fortunate with this one, in that um, there was there was an understanding that to the Disney community, uh, a, a really deep level of detail was not only acceptable but desirable. So um, so I was able to to squeeze in a lot of that history. Absolutely. It's one of, it's kind of harkening back to one of those old phrases, know your audience. And uh, certainly the, the Disney audience and film connoisseurs and, and folks who really appreciate um, rich entertainment will, will get a lot out of this book. I, I'm wondering, um, we, we kind of talked about the, the inception of this project and the early um, endeavors you were engaging in to gather information. Were there any moments, JB, where you experienced feelings of either exhilaration or just a sense of being overwhelmed by all the content that you were gathering and processing? Um, I would say more ex exhilaration than, uh, than being overwhelmed, um, because, just because there was so much material. Um, you know, that's again just just the opportunity to get in and wallow in this subject and 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 uh, learn learn everything you can about it. Um, yeah, there were there were a number of moments. There was one in particular um, when I was at the archives one day. There was there, there's a fellow named Robert Teeman who uh, was one of the top archivists then. He's he's not with the company anymore, but but he was he was there at the time. And, um, and one of the great things about the staff there is that they will find the materials that you're looking for, but they may also be aware of other materials that you wouldn't have thought to ask about. And, and uh, very often will volunteer the information that, that, you know, whatever it is, is there. 
And uh, I was working on Pinocchio one day and Robert came in and said, uh, did you know that we have all of the cutting records uh, for Pinocchio? Would you be interested in seeing those? And I said, you bet I would. What's a cutting record? And he said, well, I don't know, but after you look at them, maybe we'll both know. <laughs> so um, it turned out that they had them in storage. You know, their, their collection is so vast that um, they can only keep a fraction of it there at, you know, the actual location where you're doing the research. Um, but he brought in the, the cutting records the next day. In, in fact, eight full loose leaf binders of cutting records. And it turned out that cutting records, at least at the Disney studio at that time, were the equivalent of daily production reports at a live action studio. So anytime there was a recording session or a, uh, a live action filming session, you know, they, they filmed um, a good deal of live action just for reference for the animators. Uh, so when, whenever there was a session like that, or, or sometimes they would do both, they would, they would uh, film live action reference and also be recording voices at the same time. Anytime they had a session like that, they would keep a cutting record. Uh, and as the name implies, that was for the use of the film cutters later on when they were assembling the finished picture. And those turned out to be just completely invaluable because uh, they revealed so much about what was happening as the story took shape. See, one of the unique things about Pinocchio is that um, the adaptation of the story uh, was a lot more convoluted process than it is with some other films. Uh, there were there were many, many, many really fascinating ideas that were proposed and uh, and started and then later abandoned for something else. And, uh, and if you try to, to follow that evolutionary trail and make sense of it, uh, you'll wind up talking to yourself because it's, it's really, really uh, convoluted in places. Um, but there are ways that you can, if you, if you track all of the production papers, there are ways that you can, that you can track that story. And the cutting records were an invaluable part of that. Uh, lots and lots of information about um, voice talents that that were tried out for the film and then not used, uh, dialogue that was recorded for the film and then not used, and and then all of the musical uh, aspect of it too. So that was that was uh, one of the exhilarating moments. It was also a lot of work, but <laughs> you know, if it's something that you love, then you don't mind. I can definitely appreciate it and. I think uh, if anybody would want to focus a, a lot of time on a singular Disney animated project, you probably can't do much better than Pinocchio. Um, I love the there was a section of your book where you talk about the music, and and for me as a as a an aficionado of Disney music, both the songs and the scores, um, you give a great deal of attention to. Um, each of the pieces, um, and ultimately the, the musical score. One thing that caught my eye, um, JB, was when you're describing composer Lee Harleen as, quote, quiet and studious, end quote, and whose pieces were much more complex in nature um, than, for instance, um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Could, um, could you speak to 
Harleen's distinct musical voice in the film. I know there's a lot of leitmotifs where you can tell that each character has a distinct theme. What, what was Harleen's influence in, in shaping the composition? Well, he, um, he does have a distinct musical um, stamp, I think. And um, I, I guess the, the and, and you may have heard this before, the, the, the two big uh, names in Disney music at that period are Frank Churchill and Lee Harleen. And uh, the two of them could not have been more uh, different from each other. Um, uh, Churchill was uh, completely self-taught, um, kind of an instinctive, natural talent, and um, and and could and could improvise wonderful melodies just off the top of his head. Harleen uh, had classical training. Uh, he he did, he had he had come up through the ranks by the book, and uh, you know he he knew the whole. Uh, serious music side of of um, composition, which is not to say that he couldn't write popular songs. And and of course, as you know, uh, Pinocchio produced at least one song that is probably it's among the all time favorites of of Disney music, and that is "When You Wish Upon a Star," which actually just started out as as something that they needed for a sequence in which Geppetto was going to wish on a star. Uh, but it uh, it kind of took on a life of its own later on, so he 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 could he could grasp that uh, that popular touch, but he was he was a musical craftsman to his fingertips, and I think that you can in a way you can even get more of a sense of his his versatility if you compare his score for Pinocchio with some of the others, because even after he left uh, Disney. Uh, he continued to write musical scores for uh, a wide variety of films for other studios. And as late as the fifties, he's, uh, he's writing. Well, for example, he, he wrote the score for, for this uh, film noir title um, called pick up on South street, which has this, this really kind of seamy dangerous fifties uh, atmosphere and he captures it perfectly in, in he captures the musical uh, sense of it perfectly in his score. And you would never believe if you didn't know, you would never believe that this was written by the same composer who, who came up with these, these gorgeous, rich um, old world influenced melodies uh, for Pinocchio. I, I think it's, I, I think Pinocchio is one of the, one of the great, film scores ever written anyway. And, you know, I, I don't like best comparisons. So I don't want to say it is the best Disney score. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you could quantify that, it would definitely be among the top ones. It's it's just endlessly rich and inventive. And that's and that's not even counting the songs. That's just, as you say, the characters have themes of their own. And the themes uh, interweave with each other. And it's just, it's, it's a really rich diet of music, I think. Absolutely. Well, and even just um, some of the, uh, the orchestration from some of the songs manifests at different points in the film. So I recently rewatched the, the film. And for instance, I noticed on many occasions, um, an actor's life for me, uh, reappearing um, with different tones to reflect the mood. So for instance, on Pleasure Island or, or in other spaces and, um, I think it's a really dynamic score. And then the songs have such 
varied musical influences, like I've Got No Strings is a perfect example of where there's a lot of styles um, from different um, European flavors coming to, coming to fruition. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, in fact, that's one of the, um, one example of, of the great way that the different areas of the Disney studio uh, interacted with each other at that time, because um, the basic idea of this, this sort of international theme to Stromboli's show, which, which in a way reflects the sort of international cast of the film, that was, that was another kind of hmm. interesting um, aspect that struck me while I was working on this. The fact that it is based on a story, all of whose characters are Italian, and yet, uh, in in the Disney film, uh, they're coming from everywhere. You've, you've got you've got characters like Stromboli, who are, you know, definitely Italian, uh, but but Geppetto is a lot more Germanic. Um, Jiminy Cricket is is unquestionably a 20th century American character. Uh-huh. Um, you know, Lampwick is kind of a, a Bowery tough. I mean, they're they're coming from all over, so. Uh, so there is that international flavor, and then that's that is uh, kind of there's kind of a microcosm of that in I've got no strings. When you get this this international chorus of of puppets representing different countries, and um, and and the way that uh, that the music, as you say, the orchestration and everything changes to reflect that as as the different nationalities take turns coming on stage with Pinocchio. That's one of the real delights of, of the film, I think. Absolutely, and I, you, I love how you actually touched on a question that I had um, in my set, which is um, the, the film's international cast of characters and that reflecting, obviously, in um, the voice talent and the, the accents, too. I, I was thinking, too, even the Blue Fairy, um, in terms of her visual style, seems very reminiscent of kind of the old Hollywood of the 30s and 40s in terms of what some of those um, leading ladies look like? Um, I wouldn't dispute that. I, I think that's that's probably true. Um, that is the world that I live in most of the time <laughs> anyway. So I don't, I don't, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't strike me as unusual, but, but yeah, that, that is, that is the case. Um, she, she definitely reflects the, um, Kind of the standard of beauty that would have been, uh, that would have been the regular currency of Hollywood at the time, and I think it's interesting too that her animation was all done by uh, an animator named Jack Campbell, who had been one of the uh, the, the team of, of artists who animated the character Snow White in the film Snow White, um, and uh, you know it, it's. That that experience and, and and his experience working with with the other top animators of the character had kind of pegged him as uh, the studio specialist in animating pretty girls. So when the Blue Fairy came along, he was uh, he was the obvious casting choice for for that for the for her scenes. For sure. Well, there's a lot of beauty throughout the film and in the book, of course. Um, could you talk about just incorporating a lot of the background artwork and more of, and the concept artwork that kind of perhaps isn't as central as, as many people would be thinking um, in watching the film, but my gosh, those backgrounds are so, so rich with detail and artistry and um, 
I, I feel like what was nice in the book is I was able to pay closer attention to the, you know, the fine detail on some of the cuckoo clocks or, um, you know, looking at Pinocchio's village. It's really rich, JB. It is. Oh, no question. It is. And, um, you know, you, as, as you may know, there's a whole kind of subdivision of, of uh, Disney fandom that really loves to see uh, Disney art and, and so on that has not been seen before. Uh, there's there's a kind of a real hunger out there for um, for pictures that haven't been published a hundred times. So one of the ways to to accommodate that is to uh, to get into some of these these aspects of the art that are maybe not as familiar to people who just sit and watch the movie in a theater or or on video. Um, and 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 it is the case that when your when your eye is focused on the animated characters, you may very well miss a lot of the detail that's, that's baked into uh, the background paintings. And, uh, and that's a shame because there is some, some, some really stunning artistry in, in those paintings. And especially in a film like Pinocchio, you know, this was one of the things that I think is especially remarkable about Pinocchio is that it may be the one time in um, the history of, of Disney animation that Walt felt that he really had no limits on him uh, as far as spending money on this film. I, I think, you know, in a way, I've got no strings on me was, was kind of his theme song at the time because Snow White had, had proven to be such an enormous success that the money was still flooding into the studio and he had every reason to think that everything they tackled from that time on would be equally successful. So, uh, so when it came to getting really lavish effects in, in Pinocchio, he didn't hold anything back. And uh, so as a result, the, the backgrounds that you see are, are sometimes, you know, just beautifully rich, uh, flat paintings, but very often you're also getting multiplane effects that go even beyond what they could accomplish on the multiplane crane. And the thing that you just mentioned, the Pinocchio's village, uh, kind of one of the great uh, technological set pieces of the film is the opening scene in, in the, the, the sequence on the morning after Pinocchio comes to life. Yes. Um, the uh, starting with the, the bell up in the, in the belfry and then literally moving down over the rooftops and down into the street and around corners and under arches. It's, it is, it's a breathtaking piece of, of camera work. And uh, I think a lot of people when they're watching the film by that time have been drawn into the story so much that they may not consciously think about the, the technological feat that they're seeing in front of their eyes, but it was enormous. And uh, it's, it's, and, and I think that, you know, for, for some people, excuse me, for some people, I, I think that um, it's a little bit of a, it, it spoils the experience to see uh, the mechanics behind the scene of, of, um, you know, outstanding set pieces like that. For me, it's just the opposite. The more you know about how these, these effects were accomplished, the more astonishing they are. 
and uh, so I just loved being able to find out about that. And anyway, this sorry, I, I kind of went on a, a tangent myself. Quite all right. But um, but what you were saying about about the background paintings, the backgrounds are <laughs> are kind of a, a really um, fascinating topic for study in themselves, even apart from the rest of the film. Yeah, well, and there's there's no shortage of them that are on display in the book, and certainly, as I was kind of uh, concurrently reading the book and and watching the film and uh, absorbing all that, I, I was reminded by how there's such a a vast diversity of of different types of s set pieces, if you want to call it as such. Like you have the interior of um, Geppetto's home, which, um, as we talked about, such craftsmanship and the clocks, and then you have, you know, the the somber tone of being inside of Monstro or the, mm -hmm. um, the true scariness associated with Pleasure Island. You know, D Disney and the team really managed to, um, as you talked about, you know, there was almost like a creative license on, on imagination and perhaps fun. There's really no shortage of different types of environments that are illustrated um, in this one package of the film. That's that's absolutely true, and I think I think for a lot of people, uh, the early sequences in Geppetto's workshop with all with all of those cuckoo clocks, I, I think for a lot of people that is a real highlight of the film, because it's true. I mean, you could you could see the film over and over and over, and and still find new surprises among all those cuckoo clocks, and and even if something was only going to be on the screen for a few seconds or in a in a, a long shot combined with lots of other things, uh, the artists would still put lots of really imaginative detail into each one of those clocks. And in fact, they built working models of some of them. And, uh, you know, I mean, you, you hear stories about things like that, and sometimes we may feel a little skeptical of those stories, but, um, but we have photographic evidence. They really did build working models of these cuckoo clocks. And then, uh, the animators who who put them on the screen uh, could study that movement and and uh, duplicate it. Yeah, I, I seem to remember from the book. To your point, as far as the the model, there was the one of I think it was the the parents spanking the child. Um, where there was, yeah, mind you, not the not the um, loveliest thing to see, but nonetheless, just fascinating to see that they really took that level of care to uh, making sure it seemed realistic. They, they did. I, I think one of the things that I never get get tired of in, in seeing Pinocchio, and, and I never get tired of seeing Pinocchio, but one of the things that I never get tired of is this, this feeling um, kind of embedded in the film that there are no limits, that anything is possible. Um, so, and that applies to every aspect of the film. The, the, the story development, when they were working on the story, I, I think that there was just kind of this feeling that nothing was off limits. So, uh, so even when some of the, the writers were inclined to, uh, to, to stay within certain boundaries, uh, Walt didn't feel that compunction. So, so for example, when they were working on, on Pleasure Island, um, I, I, I think that, you know, there, there was, there was a general agreement just based on, on the novel that Pleasure Island would be a place where, uh, where the boys, 
being indulged in their worst impulses would, would create trouble for them. But I think some of the writers were thinking in terms of relatively mild consequences. So, you know, in some cases, the worst thing that these, that these kids might be guilty of was overeating. <laughs> you know, they, 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 they might just overindulge on, on junk food. Walt wasn't about to stop with something as mild as that. And, um, you know, it's, you're, you're, you're making an animated film, but animation, of course, is not just for children. Animation can go anywhere. And I don't think he held anything back. And as you see in the finished film, uh, Pleasure Island turns out to be a lot more sinister and, and frightening and dangerous place than uh, some of the writers had envisioned in the first place. Well, there's always a lot of beauty in the darkness. And I was reminded in watching Pinocchio for the first time in a number of years, and this was always one of my favorite um, Disney animated classics growing up. It is ridiculously dark and menacing. And um, per the point as far as lack, you know, no limits, I, I would imagine some of this material would be harder to translate even for modern audiences just based on um, well, certainly the, the notion of smoking and tobacco use for one, but just, just the sinister nature of, of this environment. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, I, I think that they did a brilliant job of, of uh, translating that on the screen because, I mean, it's, it's, it's an amusement park, you know. It's, it's, those are supposed to be a lot of fun, but this is one spooky place. And, uh, and it's unmistakable from the moment you get there and and as the and as the action goes on it gets darker and darker and more frightening so yeah i i think it's i think it's just again just the tremendous range of effects and atmospheres and so on that they packed into one movie uh, i think is just pretty tremendous for sure well i'm, I'm wondering in since he spent so much time with this film and uncovering all of this information and artwork is there a particular sequence that really speaks to you as perhaps the finest, um, maybe not to use a superlative, but one of the finest um, scenes in the entire picture? Oh, it's, that's a good question. It's, it's, really, it's really difficult to single out any particular one, I would say. Um, I, I do love the early sequences in, in the workshop. I, I think that, you know, kind of the, the, the warmth and the, uh, the beauty of those, of those early sequences. I mean, this is a place where, you know, you might want to move in. It's, it's just, it's so inviting and, and so, uh, so delightful. I think the, I think the positive, uh, feelings that are planted in that opening sequence uh, helps a lot to carry you through all the darkness that comes later on in the film. Uh, and of course gives kind of a, an anchor point to return to at the end. Um, so uh, I, I really, I really like those sequences. Um, the, but but there's but there's hardly a sequence anywhere in the film that doesn't have some really outstanding aspect to it. Um, you know the the comedy uh, between the fox and cat. That's you know you, you're 
you're in 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 making this film they they were going far far beyond what was normally considered um you know the the appropriate territory for animated cartoons which you know is is basically one reel of funny gags but they don't completely cut ties with that aspect of animation uh because you you do have a lot of, of great uh slapstick comedy with the fox and cat um and i think it's important that they that they didn't abandon that they just you know they they showed their mastery of that kind of animation but also added all of these these other aspects uh too um I'm I'm trying to think whether there, of course the 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 marionette show I've got no strings that's that that is a highlight, uh, and for the reasons that we just talked about uh, a few minutes ago, um, I I I may be letting you down a little bit here, but I it's I don't quite all right. <laughs> I I don't think I can actually the the very very opening sequence with with uh, Jiminy Cricket. Uh, introducing the story and speaking directly to the audience, um, I have a real soft spot for that for that sequence too. Um, partly because I remember so vividly seeing it, seeing the movie in childhood, and you know that's right at the at the front of the movie, so it's <laughs> you know it, it makes an especially strong impression uh, just when the movie is starting. Yeah. No, it's so impactful. I was reminded in, um, it was kind of surprising in, in that opening um, shot of, of Jiminy Cricket and sitting from the storybook that we see a Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland uh, books in the background. And mind you, those films wouldn't come to fruition in, in the Disney realm for another decade. That's true. That's true. But they are not there by accident. <laughs> I right. I you. know. <laughs> like <laughs> because, a teaser foreshadowing. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, uh, that's, that's exactly right. Because uh, I'm, I'm sorry, were you going to, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, 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 please. I'd love you for you to elaborate on that. <laughs> well, it's, it's just that uh, during production of Pinocchio, uh, the studio did acquire the movie rights to both of those stories. And, uh, and, in fact, some preliminary story work was already starting, uh, even as production of Pinocchio was going ahead. So, so yeah, I, I think that it's it's not a coincidence that those titles are showing up in, in the opening of the film. Yeah, well, and I think that's what's the, kind of the um, distinctness of Pinocchio, because you, as you alluded to, Jimmy Cricket breaks the fourth wall, which we don't really see much of um, in Disney animation. And then the notion of teasing um, what, what might lie ahead, that makes Pinocchio kind of its, in its own realm of just really having a cool, unique factor. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and again, um, that is something, you know, for those of us who grew up on this film, um, you know, we, we, may, we may just take that for granted because that's the film that we've always known. Uh, the, the, the one that starts out with Jiminy Cricket talking directly to the camera and then serving as the narrator throughout the rest of the story. Or, or, and, and as even when he's not narrating off screen, he's still kind of the thread that, that uh, holds the whole story together. Um, but in fact, it took a lot of work to arrive at that idea. And many other ideas were tried and discarded before they got to that. And, um, and, and that to me is, is another 
hallmark of, of the, the greatness of this film. Something that was, that caused so much difficulty and, and, and uh, problems in story construction that they wrestled with all through the making of the film. By the time they had it finished, uh, it is, it, it, it's, it flows so naturally and so beautifully that you never think to question it. And, uh, and that's, I think that's one of the, the signs of genius to do the difficult and make it look easy. Right. Well, I think some of the, the best Disney animated films have that touch. Um, and, and we know even um, in more of a modern era with some of the Pixar films, how there were major uh, story challenges that unfolded, but yet they, you know, they came together to, to craft some of the best um, pictures in, in this era. Um, one, one thing I'm thinking about with Pinocchio that I really appreciated you touching on, JB, was the use of characters from the film beyond the film. So the notion of Figaro and Cleo um, being in some of those Disney animated shorts of the 40s or Jiminy Cricket as like a um, kind of like a Mickey Mouse type figure um, as a kind of a, a central Disney character in different shorts and sequences over the coming decades. Can you talk about um, just the the impact of Disney translating these characters from one context to other contexts. Well, that's that's uh, you've you've got a you've got a good eye there. That's that's a good thing to pick up on, because uh, that was not the standard practice. And in fact, um, uh, Walt had had gone around and around that subject with with Snow White before this, with people wanting. Uh, him to make other films with the dwarfs. And they did eventually get into some uh, public service shorts and, and, and so on. But he really resisted making a sequel to Snow White, which was what a lot of people wanted. Um, he, he, he resisted the idea of, of taking those characters out of the universe that they were created for. So the fact that he changed his mind for two of the characters in Pinocchio, I think is, is pretty remarkable. Now with Figaro, uh, I, I was really excited when I first discovered this just because, just because of that, you know, it's, um, it, it, it is not common to see uh, a character from one of the features show up in short subjects, but with, with Figaro, uh, you know, the, the original novel does, does, depict Geppetto having a pet cat, but not much is made of it. And you could very easily read the novel and uh, come away without any impression of the cat at all. Um, but of course, in the case of Pinocchio with, with, with Figaro, uh, this, this, the cat became a kitten and the kitten allowed all kinds of opportunities for, uh, for good uh, kind of cute comedy business and, and uh, expressive, character animation and that's uh, and that's the kind of character that can fit into any number of situations so uh, so it wasn't uh, untoward for uh, for the studio to be able to use a kitten like that as as a pet for Minnie Mouse for example and and that's and that's the way he turns up in, in a number of the later uh, cartoon shorts uh, Jiminy Cricket was a little bit different case only in that um, he was such uh, an appealing, uh, engaging character and a, and a down-to-earth character. And as I say, uh, you know, you're, you're seeing him in 
uh, a 19th century Italian setting, but he is unmistakably a 20th century American character. So, and, and, uh, and they had established this convention of having him talk directly to the camera. And that made him a pretty versatile character in his own right. So um, uh, along with that, there was the fact that Cliff Edwards uh, said at the end of a production on Pinocchio that he had really enjoyed himself. He really wanted to come back and work for Walt again. And uh, truth be told, uh, he needed the work. So, um, uh, so he, they, they actually, they found a number of, of uh, ways that they could work with Cliff Edwards. But the most obvious thing, of course, was to bring back Jiminy Cricket. And um, so he turns up again in Fun and, fun and Fancy Free, uh, which is um, something that I've actually just written about re recently also. Um, and in, in a setting where you might expect to find a character like that, because it is pretty much a contemporary American setting. So he fit right in. And from there, it was just a short jump to uh, television, which they got into a few years later. And, uh, and Jiminy Cricket wound up being a really um, appropriate character to use, for example, on the Mickey Mouse Club, because his, his role in Pinocchio was, was to be Pinocchio's conscience and to, you know, to, to advise him and, and, and steer him through difficult situations and help him learn lessons in life. And that kind of a character was just made to order for a children's television program in the 50s. And so he became a fixture on the Mickey Mouse Club, too. So um, I, I, guess the, I guess the lesson here is be as versatile a character as you can, and you may find uh, more and more casting opportunities as you go along. Absolutely. Well, I think that was just a, an appealing aspect that you touched on both um, in the in the book or in the main part of the book and also um, in the appendix, because I think it's worth um, illustrating that these characters uh, legacies extend beyond the, the film. Um, on the Cleo note, I do want to mention how I'm really relieved that in, that in the final uh, final product of the film that they did not end up eating Cleo within Monstro because they were so hungry. I, that was such a relief. I didn't know that was actually on on the um, cutting room floor. Yeah, isn't that something that? And I mean, talk about no story idea being off limits. Uh, but but you know, they were dealing with a situation where three characters were were trapped in in this in this difficult place. In this case, the stomach of a whale, and um, and they couldn't get any food and they were all hungry. And, um, that's, that is one of the ideas that, that can come up is that the two bigger characters might start eyeing the, the smaller character and, and, uh, uh, thinking of that character as, as a possible meal. So, um, uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty remarkable too. And they, uh, and, and, and of course, uh, at, at, at the beginning, they were thinking of it as a comedy sequence. Um, and then, of course, uh, of course, Geppetto snapped out of it and, and, and he said, no, no, what am I thinking? And, 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 wouldn't, and wouldn't, you know, seriously consider eating his pet fish. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it was uh, on the table, so to speak. And, uh, and, and seriously considered for a long time to the point that some actual animation was done for 
uh, for that sequence. And, um, and one of the things that I thought was kind of really wonderful to learn about is that that animation was cut from Pinocchio, but they found a way to use it in a short cartoon years later. Um, uh, still in a way that wasn't too traumatic <laughs> for the, for the younger members of the audience, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, if, if you, if you, you know, basically better ingredients, better movie, you know, if, if you, if you have something that's as strong as that and you don't use it, then, then you have an asset that can always be used later on. And in this case it was. Right. Touches on that notion of good ideas never die. They just somehow uh, pop up um, in other contexts or spaces many years later. That's um, right. And, and I think it's important to, um, to point out that that was one of the most remarkable things about the Disney studio at this time is that it was just this, this rich, ever evolving mass of ideas. Um, so many, so many wonderful creative ideas that uh, were constantly morphing and evolving into new ideas. And um, we know about the ones that eventually did find their finished form uh, in, in, the, in the films that were completed and released. But there were so many others that, um, uh, that never did uh, find full completion or that were abandoned on the way to a different version of the same idea. It's, it's just, it's just remarkable. It was, it was, a, a just a, a, a wellspring of creativity. Of course, I, I couldn't agree with you more and kind of wrapping up our discussion on Pinocchio. Can you maybe sh share in, in your perspective, since you are so well versed with the film and, and chronicling its history and development, what what do you think, JB, is the ultimate impact that Pinocchio has had on the history of Disney animation, considering it was the second animated feature and um, in many ways set the ground, uh, set the foundation for all that followed? Well, I really think that it's um, that a big part of its impact is as as an inspiration for. Uh, for the Disney artists as, as they went forward, but also for any artist in, in the field of animation. Um, you know, it's just, it's such uh, an incredibly high bar for um, uh, kind of the formal technique of, of the animated film. Uh, I, I think that if, if you talk to, you know, 99% of the people who work in animation now, uh, they would confirm that, um, you know, if they ever start to run dry, they can go back and watch Pinocchio again and just be endlessly inspired by what can be accomplished in this medium. The great beauty, the great excitement, and just the, and just the rich visual storytelling and musical storytelling that uh, is possible in this medium, uh, even, even against difficulties. Absolutely. I, I agree. I, um, I, I was reminded through rewatching the film and reading this book that um, not only the, the forces behind it, but also um, the, the folks who followed the subsequent animators who contributed to Disney um, have a lot to owe to um, just the ingeniousness behind this feature. 
Um, and for that, you know, I'm very, very thankful that you produced a, a book on this because um, I think it only enhanced my appreciation for Pinocchio. And I imagine other readers feel the same. Well, thank you. I, that's, that's gratifying to hear because, of course, that's, that's what you want. You know, when you do something like this, you want to, to uh, foster a, a greater appreciation uh, for the film. So if, 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 that has, if that has happened, then I'm glad to hear about it. Absolutely. Well, let's, um, before we handle our kind of rapid fire Disney opinion related questions, just could you share with listeners um, perhaps what's next on the docket for you? I, re I recognize that you have produced um, other books since um, the release of this Pinocchio title, but what's in store for you moving forward? Um, well, several things, actually. I, I've, I've, got, I've got several uh, projects on the fire right now. Um, uh, David Gerstein and I collaborated on a, on a great big Mickey Mouse book for Tashin. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that, uh, was released in 2018 for, uh, for Mickey's 90th birthday. And so, uh, we immediately started working on a follow-up about Donald Duck, which, um, is, is pretty well along now, but it's been impacted like everything else in the world by the, by the pandemic. So progress on that has slowed down quite a bit, but I am told that the wheels are turning again now. So. Uh, we have high hopes that that will be um, finished and released in 2021. Um, I'm working with uh, the granddaughter of Clarence Nash on, on his biography, which has turned out to be uh, a really, really interesting project, too. Biography is not necessarily my thing, but um, Margaret Barnes is, is the name of, of Nash's granddaughter, and she uh, has collected such a wealth of family memorabilia and plus the fact that you know he was he was her grandfather and she loved him and and so she it's it's a really warm personal story from her perspective so i've been really enjoying uh working on that with her uh, and and there are a number of other things in the works too not all of which i can can talk about right now but uh but those are two of the major ones at the moment of course, yeah. Well, I, I appreciate the the tease about the Donald Duck uh, related projects and Clarence Nash, of course, um, getting some further recognition. Um, yeah, yeah. Donald is a big part of my life right now. <laughs> That's great. Well, I, I I like the notion of attending to particular characters. I think you know what, JB. I think there was so much good stuff on Jiminy Cricket here. I think that could be its own book as well. So. Oh, well, well, thank you. And that's, and who knows? I mean, there, there may be other, there may be a possibility of doing other, other things along those lines. Uh, I wouldn't rule anything out at this point. For sure. Well, yeah, Jiminy Cricket um, is probably one of my all time favorite Disney characters. And I have a little Jiminy Cricket watch that I wear that has um, the let, you know, let your conscience be your guide. I, it's a strong character. So there's that potential. Well, yeah, that's that's very good. Yeah, I I, I like that character a lot too. Um, he was he uh, he was he was a pretty durable, versatile character. For sure. Well, let's wrap up um, with some Disney opinion related questions. As I um, have shared, there are no wrong answers. It's all your opinion. Um, we'll start off with some music based ones. Uh, first one is what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? 
Um, actually, it may very well have been Pinocchio. Um, we had the we had the LP, you know, the the storyteller LP, mm. and um, so I memorized <laughs> a lot of that music, and 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 I was I was I was pretty fanatical about Disney from an early age, so I probably drove my parents crazy, but but yeah, I I think that that was uh, probably imprinted on my DNA before it was all over. That and uh, Dumbo. We we had the the LP of the Dumbo soundtrack, and of course that's got some wonderful music in it too. But but there's nothing like the richness of that Pinocchio score, I think. Mm. And what was nice too, speaking of that, is uh, I want to say about five years ago, the Walt Disney Records Legacy Collection released um, a really extensive soundtrack um, on Pinocchio, the songs and the scores. Score. Um, I think that was also a nice compliment for more of like a modern era to appreciate the, the soundtrack. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for, for great film scoring. I'm a big fan of Max Steiner and some of the other mm. great Hollywood composers. And I frankly believe that Harleen's work on Pinocchio can stand up with any of those. For sure. Well, another music related question for you. What Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Uh, most recently, <laughs> well, um, uh, actually, I, uh, most recently, I guess, would be today. And and in preparing for this interview, I, I was thinking a lot about Pinocchio. So, it would probably be uh, give a little whistle. Um, you know, that's that's a that's well, you don't need me to tell you that's <laughs> that's that's a really engaging little song, and. Um, and Ward Kimball, of course, um, had a lot to do with putting that over on, on the screen. So that's, I, I guess you're asking about music, and, and, uh, but the visuals for me are kind of inextricably bound up with that one. So I guess that was the most recent one. Sure. Now that makes complete sense. Uh, it's a really delightful ditty. Uh, third music question for you, JB, is what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Oh boy, that's a good question. I, uh, I actually, sorry to keep coming back to this, but it may very well be Pinocchio. Um, I one of the things that that really surprised me in working on the book is that um, a number of people, a number of reviewers. Uh, seemed not to like the music in Pinocchio. And uh, to me, that's, that's incomprehensible. Um, but it is the case that, you know, the, well, you, you know, first of all, you know that, that Pinocchio was not the tremendous box office smash that Snow White had been. Exactly. Uh, and that, and that kind of changed the courses of the studio too. But, but, um, but the reviewers didn't know that, you know, when, when they, when they, when the film was first shown and, and they were writing their reviews, they didn't know what was going to happen and they were ecstatic about it. And I think some of them to show that they could be objective and not just, you know, not just be Disney's PR team. They were looking for something that they could say 
uh, something negative that they could say about it uh, to, to show their objectivity. And um, more than a few singled out the music. They didn't think that the music measured up to that in Snow White. Um, to me, that's crazy. I mean, I, I, I don't, uh, as I say, I don't believe in best comparisons, you know, because I love the music in Snow White too. So I don't want to play one against the other, but, but at least at the time, I think that it's possible that the music in Pinocchio was the most unappreciated or underappreciated at the time. No, I can, I, I definitely value what you're saying there. Uh, and I think a lot of the scores of the early Disney era don't get the same degree of attention just because, you know, they're not as perhaps as present, but um, I think you, you made a lot of good points there. Shifting over to a couple of book related questions. Uh, what is the most recent Disney book you have read? Oh, let's see. The most recent one that I have read. I guess it would have to be, um, I guess it would have to be one of John Canemaker's books. Um, I think the most recent of his that I've read is uh, Two Guys Named Joe. Do you know that one? Yeah, Joe Ramft and Joe Grant, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, you know, basically, I, I, I think you can't go wrong with Canemaker. He's, he's uh, you know, he's just just a, a top-notch um, animation historian. And, and you may know also uh, an Academy Award-winning animator himself. But um, I, think, I, think his, I think that is the most recent one that I've read. Very nice. Uh, and perhaps you can't answer this question, but I'll still pose it. Uh, if you could write a Disney book on any topic, what would it be about? And I say that realizing you have a few projects you can share about and that you've already written a lot, but I'll, I'll still ask it anyway. Uh, <laughs> that, that is, well, if we filter out the ones that are in the works <laughs> that I can't talk about, um, I've always been fascinated with the Disney camera department. Um, and I have a book in mind that, you know, maybe five people would read, <laughs> but, um, I, to me, um, that's an area of, of, uh, animated, of, of animation filmmaking that doesn't get a lot of attention because in a way, I mean, in a way it's not a, a, a real sexy subject. You know, the, the cameraman's job is to sit there and, and, um, you know, replace one cell after another all day and, and shoot them in sequence. Um, and yet there are, when you start digging into it, there are a lot of fascinating things to know about that process. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker for cameras anyway. So uh, I, in a way, if it, if it ever turns out to be possible, I'd, I'd kind of like to do something on the Disney camera department during the golden age. Um, I think that would be a lot of fun. And I, and again, I don't, I don't imagine that there will be a great market for it, but I'd, I'd kind of like to tackle that anyway. You know, I'll, I'll say, I don't think any topic is too niche. I could imagine there would be an audience for that. And I also think of what author Dave Bossert, who was on our show before talked about with his Ken Weber book on Disney studio furniture, thinking that that would never sell. That would never be 
um, a, a big enough subject. And sure enough, a lot of people quite enjoyed it. So I think there would be an audience for your camera focused book. Well, thank you. I, uh, I, I, will, I will take that as, as encouragement to do the project. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just complete the other ones first, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've, I've, got, I've got enough uh, projects lined up uh, to last for several lifetimes now. So <laughs> I, I just keep trying to push ahead a little bit every day. Of course. Well, your last question is, and this is a random question that I mix up with each guest. Um, Pinocchio obviously has a lot of great um, vocal performances. And I was thinking about the notion of voice artists in Disney films. Do you have a favorite Disney voice actor performance? Oh boy. Uh, that's, that's a really good question too. Um, I'm, I, I guess uh, I don't know that I could single out just one favorite. Okay. Um, one that, well, I don't, I don't want to let you down here. Um, one, one that comes to mind. Well, there are several that come to mind. Uh, since I've just been writing about fun and fancy free, uh, one of the things that really struck me about it was uh, Anita Gordon's performance as the singing harp. And I didn't know until I started researching the film, you know, that's not a name that you hear a lot in Disney history. And there's a good reason for that. Uh, Fun and Fancy Free was her only film with Disney. And the reason she was there was that... Um, uh, Edgar Bergen and, and, you know, his, his dummies, his ventriloquist dummies were brought in, um, to, uh, to play a part in the film. And Edgar Bergen was such a remarkable talent and, and, and so popular at the time. He was, he was highly, highly successful in the 1940s. So he had enough clout to, uh, make some requests of his own. And, um, one of them was that his musical director, Ray Noble, uh, was, was actually contracted to write some of the songs for the film. And Anita Gordon was a featured singer on, on Bergen's radio program. And um, as a, I don't know if it was just as a courtesy, because she was a very good singer. But, but um, because of that connection, she did perform the voice of the singing harp. And I think she did a, a pretty lovely job of it. So that is that is one that comes to mind right away. Um, I, I could probably come up with more. I don't know if we're running over time here or or not, but totally up to you if you'd like to highlight others. Otherwise, that's a very solid pick that I would never have imagined, but still value. Well, um, actually, there's another one that comes not too long after that, and and that is. Um, Eileen Woods in Cinderella and Cinderella for me is, is kind of a, a late model film. And I, I think that that may sound funny, but for me, when you start getting into the fifties, that's a little after my time. But, um, but in the case of Cinderella, that was, that's the first movie I ever remember seeing was Disney's Cinderella. So, uh, and, and it's, I, 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 I think I can say at this point that it really did change my life. Um, 
to look up at that giant surface and see these gorgeous moving drawings on it that seem to be alive. I think that really did change my life. And so um, it made a big impression on me. And, and um, I've revisited it again more than once since then. And I think Eileen Woods is just, you know, her, her singing voice for Cinderella is just really beautiful. So that's, I, I would put that on the list too. Very lovely. Well, let's kind of conclude um, making sure that listeners know how to follow your work. How can they um, pick up a copy of your, any of your books and or follow you online or on social media? Um, I am on, well, not a lot of social media, but I'm on Facebook and I do have um, uh, an official website and it's just, it's, it's easy to find. It's just my name, jbkaufman.com. Um, and uh, if you go to that site, you can find more than you want to know about me and my work. And um, all of, all of the books that I publish are, uh, they all have pages there uh, once, once they are published. Fantastic. JB, it has been a pleasure talking with you all about Pinocchio and its legacy and, and ultimately your role in telling the story, which um, certainly there has been um, information on Pinocchio released in different contexts over the years, but for a true compendium, uh, I am such a fan of this title and, and appreciative that you were um, the one who was able to relay this narrative. So thank you very much for joining me and, and for for creating this book for all of us. Well, thank you, thank you, Brett, and and uh, I appreciate your kind words, and it's it's been a real pleasure talking with you today. And thanks go out again to author J.B. Kaufman for coming on Notably Disney. It was a really fun conversation. I had an even greater appreciation for Pinocchio through this dialogue. Um, I already certainly had. Um, much more fervor for the film through the book and revisiting the film, um, but this added some even richer context uh, to the overall composition. So thank you again, JB, and I know all of us will be eagerly awaiting the Donald Duck-based books that are on the docket. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports, that's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports, and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably, Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.